Welcome, everyone, back to the broadcast. I am, in fact, David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this fine post-Thanksgiving, this black, blackest of Black Fridays, but never when I'm with you, Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? I'm good, Dave. How are you? You That, that welcome kind of hmm. scared me. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> wow, that sounded like we were going into like a slasher movie. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Do you have a little? Um, did you? I have hear? some. Gra- I have some gravel in my voice. Yeah, you picked that up in Hawaii, did you? Yeah. Well, it's just you know the transition back to these dry climbs. Yeah. Um. After being in the humid paradise of uh, Hawaii, of Oahu. Did you have Honolulu. fun? I did. He, I did. Uh, Dave brought his daughters. Which I brought my children. And this is they, the first time you'd ever been away, correct? Uh, first time I'd been, first time they'd been. Aww. So they had a blast. Um, they didn't want to leave. That's so fun. But like, um, like we did a little bit of the stuff, but like what they didn't want to leave was basically the pool um, and being at the pool like for six hours a day. Did they actually go in the ocean? Yeah, they sure did. They yeah. sure did. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, we did the, so we were at the Marriott where the team was staying, which was basically right across the street from the beach. So they spent, like, most of, like, two or three entire mornings just at the beach. Just, you know, farting around, doing the whole thing. Like, we were in the little, like, waiting beach um, for a lot of it, where they had, like, a wave break, um, and there were just schools of fish swimming around in there. And one one of my kids was just chasing the school of fish the entire time. Uh, it was a lot of fun. That's fun. Did you see Mick out at the pool? Mick Cronin? No. No, I saw Darren, Darren Savino. I saw, I saw Savino out at the pool. Or out at the out at the pool bar, uh working on some uh I think it was the pre scout from Mar- Marquette. Did you say hello? Yeah, I just waved to him. Oh, he was that's busy. Fun. He was doing his thing. Yeah, he's doing his thing. Uh, was he in like a uh, like a Hawaiian shirt? <laughs> no, he was wearing his UCLA polo. <laughs> You're not doing anything for this visual for me. No, no. It was big board uh, shorts? No. No. <sighs> No, no, just he was he was Darren Savino in the wild. That's all it was. Mm. Uh, but no, the entire team was there. So like every time I was going down to the pool, um, which was like frequent during the day, uh, the team was always like just like filing into the other part of the pool area because that was where they set up their like buffet meals and everything. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, my so my kids were constantly in the elevator. So it was Purdue and UCLA that were staying there. So my kids were constantly going into the elevator, and like frequently, it was either a Daimara or Zach Eady in the elevator with them. So they're just like looking up at like a seven four guy just constantly. And it was how uh, can he get in one of those elevators? He's bent over, right? Hunched, hunched, hunched. Yeah, and so like Adaya, I had a, like a brief glimpse of what it's like to be him because you know getting in the elevator and then there's these, these like touristy types. I think it was like maybe some Purdue fans or something. They just immediately ask him, "Don't even say hello." How tall, How are, tall you? are you? And you could just hear him like the the like soul death a little bit. And he's just like seven three, <laughs> seven three. Yeah, it poor, was, uh, poor guy. Yeah, poor guy. Yeah, poor guy. Um. So yeah, that was uh, that was the experience in Hawaii. Well, um, then let's talk basketball. Let's please let's talk do basketball. That. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said you went one and two. Yeah, let's. I first off, let's your perspective. There's always a different perspective when you're watching a game. Uh, the the media was 
instead of up in a distant box, <laughs> correct? You were okay, right so on top of it. First, I've got a complaint. My position of mostly watching the games from home is totally correct. It is the absolute, inviolable, like absolute correct position. I was sitting behind a basket yeah. the entire game trying yep. to watch this thing. Yep. Both, uh, all three games. So the perspective's different. I mean, and I, I, I've known this for many years of doing it, but it's, it's not as easy to, uh, you know, no, like, especially like spacing, like, Where's this guy? Where's he in relation to his defender? Is much much harder from that court level, especially from that angle. Yeah, that's see, that's if you're you're watching the game because you're going to write about it. A lot of the media aren't even watching the game. No, I've got Seth Davis in front of me, just staring at his phone the entire wait, frigging wait, game. Wait, you buried the lead. Yeah, Seth my boy. Davis. This is your guy. I mean, you guys, you exchange Christmas cards and things. Yeah, together. We're, we're best buds. We're so, best buds. Did you say anything to him? Does he know who you are? No, I wasn't oh, about to do that. You should have introduced yourself. No, I didn't want to do that. Oh but my god! It's uh, just for everyone to know. Um, I've bought. I've gotten two. I've gotten my Twitter account blocked by Seth and Bros. I think that's the only. I think that's the only account Bros blocked. <laughs> it might be. Uh, Dave got in a Twitter war with Seth Davis. <laughs> I've gotten in a couple now. There's been there's oh been gosh. multiple multiple. I mean, uh, it's and you're you're just trolling him too. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. And he and he gets sucked right in, and then after a while, he just blocks you. It's so sad. <laughs> um. Anyway, you got you got that schmuck just like staring at his phone the whole time. Anyway, uh, the first couple of games, um. Uh, UCLA was on the far bench. The last game, they were on the near bench. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was an interesting perspective. Um, hearing the UCLA bench up close, um, Mick was Mick was on one, uh, especially against Gonzaga, which drew some. I don't know. Was that obvious on TV? How much of one he was on? Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of different. Um, facets to mix sideline there's during you know there's his actual walking up and down the sideline during a game or even at a dead ball and he's yelling at the refs or he's yelling at his players in a position and then there's the timeouts oh yeah um the telecast showed him throw a chair throw one of the chairs that you know they bring out the chairs and and he threw he just kind of shoved it, I'd say. Yeah. They showed that twice. <laughs> That's not good. No. Um, and then the rest of the, the rants on the sideline. That yeah. was it. They didn't they didn't get in too deeply to the timeout uh yeah, little This huddle. was this was the most so I, I again, there's the caveat that I um I mostly am watching from TV. This was the most I had seen. Like the the probably the most intense he's been during a game, and I'd heard pregame um, that like he really really wanted this one. Like this was one that he'd spent all night game planning, and he'd kind of like the the team was walking out of like the pregame scout with like wide eyes, like wow, you know we're, we've really got to get this one. Um, so I I think that kind of maybe had a role in it too, but. Really, really intense, um, and like the collected media, but also like just like the huge swaths of fan sections right behind and around the UCLA bench were all like, 
you could hear them muttering after because uh, they would go into a timeout and he'd be like screaming at a dam or screaming at Dylan or something. And everyone would be like, wow, he's just he's going after him. I didn't I thought I'd, I didn't think I'd need earplugs for the timeouts. <laughs> um, I mean, and it was. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about it before. I, I generally I, I think you can get your point across without, you know go into those lengths um i realize different styles especially with coaching and in basketball guys are used to it because there's at all levels of college basketball well at all levels of basketball coaching going down to youth leagues you've got coaches who are screamers and coaches who are not um i just generally it's not my not my preferred style yeah you know it's a good thing for us to talk about um i think for me not preferred either but uh, mixed version of it is obviously successful. There are there are yeah. for whatever reason there are coaches who can get very intense and scream, and it doesn't and it doesn't work. Uh, we know it. His works for whatever reason it 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 works. Uh, so I says uh, th- I say there's that. The other thing is it's not for everyone, and we've always told. <laughs> You know, that's been our day one message when Mick Cronin got the job. The program is not going to be for everyone. Um, Generally, it will, you know, weed out those who don't want to come. And those are the the ones who look at this and say, I don't want any part of that, are the ones that wouldn't work well within the program and probably be successful anyway uh, working for them. So uh, it's a self-screening, you know, process. And that's part of it. Um, I, I think it's always uh, I, there's a different element to it here, and let, I mean, let's just talk about it because it's interesting. Uh, there are when you recruit American uh, prospects, they kind of know who Mick Cronin is, at least more so, right? Yeah. Than if you're international, I think the international guys are going through a little bit of a process of realizing, and they got it in practice. It wasn't like this was the first time. It might have been a little stunning that it was that they're starting to get used to it at a game, and like you said against Gonzaga because it was it was pretty intense for for Gonzaga. You, and, and I just have to say too, uh, from what I've heard, Cronin was working on it last season, and I thought he got a little bit better. Um, but I think you're right; he really wanted this. He wanted this win. That combined with the inexperience of the team created that little environment yeah and i would say the previous two games it i mean i I, we were further away but it was it was i would say normal level cronin uh this past one i thought was 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 high level cronin it was 99th percentile cronin um anyway that's all about uh soft stuff the games themselves um i would say from an atmosphere perspective marquette uh ucla was NCAA tournament like later round level like the intensity the 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 volume of um the fan bases like everything about the atmosphere felt like wow this is a really really high level game Gonzaga was not that uh UCLA Gonzaga was an absolutely listless god-awful basketball game made so entirely by the refs now, I will say, if the refs had not been so bad, I'm not sure UCLA would have been in the game long enough to 
finally make that run at the end. I thought Mick Cronin had a... Well, not only that, I made that point, that they yeah. stayed in the game because they shot so many free throws. <clears throat> yeah, it was all it was all um, the fouls actually keeping them in. Yeah. But um, Mick's impression of the game that they started playing hard after whatever it was, like eight minutes or whatever, I didn't think they started playing really hard until the final eight minutes of the game. Um, they were kept in it largely by the free throw line. Um, and at the end of the game, essentially they found, you know, Hey, the salon guy, he can really play. Um, I think there were three layers because the first seven to eight minutes really, I, they looked shell shocked or stunned. And, and I wrote about it. I, I think, uh, they played Marquette. Um, Marquette is a perimeter oriented game. And you tell me watching that game, they don't, they set screens, but they don't really set tough physical screens. And then Shamanad was a complete perimeter game. Uh, uh, Gonzaga has a rep, and I saw it in this game too. They they punch you, they pull you, they grab you, they they push you. It's what they do. And I think just the whole experience of being there, playing three games in a row, and then suddenly getting pushed and 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 uh, pulled and everything. They were shell shocked. So there's that level. Then they, they, they intensified for a portion of the game and then they really turned it up in the last six, seven minutes. Yeah. That, that was, yeah, I think we're, we're speaking the same language. Yeah. I just wanted to make, just get that little thing in about Gonzaga. 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 Um, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that one but go. yeah, so it was, um, I just thought uh, from a from a just the uh, observing the game standpoint, I thought Marquette UCLA was just a much much better game. Uh, Gonzaga ended up being close, but it was you know miserable. Um, and then from like a, I guess my overarching impression of this team. Well, uh, first from, off, wait. Let's just talk. Have you? I've never seen anything like that from a referee standpoint. There was there was a foul. Uh, called every 47 seconds in that game yeah i mean it was it was the worst officiated game i've ever seen uh and uh just to add a personal element i had to catch a direct flight out of honolulu that night (laughs) and them making it the longest game of the maui invitational by about 25 minutes was insane I was like telling everyone pregame, I'm like, oh, it'll be fine because it's going to be a two-hour game. We'll do interviews and all that kind of stuff. Instead, I was just sweating bullets, just sweating bullets the entire time because the first half took an hour. They called 29 fouls, so it took an hour. Then it was halftime, and then the second half took another hour because they called 22 more fouls. Insane, Tracy. Insane. <laughs> uh, Adaimara played three minutes. He had three fouls. Yep. Ken Wuba. Fouled out in, in four, 14, in 14 minutes. minutes. <laughs> While then a Dembona, uh, Berg, everyone's piling up, piling up fouls. They all were in foul trouble the entire game. Uh, it was insane. And I know that's a physical game between Gonzaga and UCLA, but but you just can't. I, what did I think Mark Few said he respected the refs call that they were trying to get it under control. Well, they didn't succeed. No. Yeah. No, and they were calling. I mean, it was it was really capricious, but I would say, like, it was, I mean, the post stuff was relatively consistent. It's just 
you couldn't play in the post. Like, that's what they were basically telling the teams. You can't post up. And if a guy posts up, you actually can't touch him either. Um, so, sorry, you just can't play in the paint. I think through the first three minutes of the game, there were eight fouls all on the post players for both teams. It was insane. Yeah. It. Um, and just to also say, worst three officiated games in a row that I think I've watched. Marquette was really bad, too. Wow, That was Marquette more of the, like, bad. this wow. is just... This is just capricious and stupid. Um, but, yeah, it was really bad. Um, okay. Anyway. Um, all right. So, overall impression of the team uh, from the three games, from my perspective, is I think we got a lot more information. Um, I think, generally speaking, I'm, a, I'm, I'm higher on them coming out than I was going in. Uh, I think the upside is there. Um, and I think it's – you can you – can, see how to uh hit it i do think um there's some there's some come to jesus stuff that i think mick cronin has to uh arrive at that i think that's going to be the 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 harder piece um and it's not quite like prince ali 2019 2020 level but there are some things that he has to realize and stop doing or accentuate differently that we all got information from this game, but from these three games, but it's now going to be how does the person who actually matters utilize that information? Yeah. Um, I came away too, like you said, we have a lot more information and that's how I wrote that story. Um, uh, a lot more to go on. Uh, my impression was, uh, first off, the biggest takeaway for me, and, and this is combined, just not those three games, but the six games that they played completely now. Um, the, uh, Mick Cronin, the, the vital component for him to be able to coach a team and for that team to be even marginally successful is if they're going to play hard and be relatively tough. Uh, my, my one takeaway, biggest takeaway was that I think that's a you check that box. Uh, they are they're a mess on defense in a lot of ways, but for the most part, for a team made up of a lot of freshmen and a lot of young guys, they're playing hard. Um, they have some letdowns where they look fatigued. Dylan Andrews looked tired against Gonzaga to me, um, and understandably so. I mean, playing point guard for three straight games. Um, will tire you out, but I was, I I say I'm more uh, impressed than I even. I, I think there's always a roll of the dice that these you're going to get guys who are going to play hard and be tough and be tough minded, and I think he has the, uh, the potential for this team to live up to that this year. Without it, it's just it's just not going to happen, right, uh, Mick. Cronin will make it, will want it to happen. But if you, you don't have those guys, it's not going to happen. And, and he's going through the process right now of trying to discover who those guys are. Uh, my second uh, biggest takeaway was Alain Fiblois. I I think he didn't play extended minutes, but when he was in there, he showed he's, he's a Mick Cronin kind of guy. And, and, um, 
what I liked about him particularly, he seems so even keeled. Like nothing's – he just comes in. He plays at the same level. He comes in. The team's better on both sides of the of the court. He does little things. It's it's so weird because he's not Jalen Clark. He doesn't – there's so many things different between him and Jalen Clark, but there are so many things that are similar. And one of the biggest similarities is remember when you'd insert Jalen Clark, the team immediately got better. Yeah. I mean, especially – I mean, we knew this when he was a junior, but – we didn't know about it when he was a freshman or sophomore. We were just starting to learn. And remember, we became, we became Jalen Clark Report Online. And um, they they didn't serve him in the game. The team just started playing better. And you'd go, wait, let me go look. Yeah, that's when they started playing better when Jalen Clark came in. That's how that's how Flibloy is for me. It's yeah. the same effect. Well, and if he doesn't start, he's got this, my, my feeling, he's got to be the first off the bench like Jalen Clark was. He's their sixth man. Yeah, and this is the part where I think it's um, the the Jalen Clark comparison is apt. And some people, I mean, uh, some people were saying before, uh, I think somebody posted on the board, oh, maybe he'll have his Jaime Hawkes freshman year opening moment. And I think Ben said something similar in his, he tweeted after the game about uh, Alon emerged in Maui just like Jaime Hawkes. And I'm like, yeah, but Mick's not going to see Alon the same way he saw Jaime because he doesn't have the offensive skill. Um, and so Alon's going to be more in that Jalen Clark bucket where I think I think his minutes this year are going to be interesting to observe. So right now, just so everyone knows a statistical perspective, and this is all very early, but he leads the team in box score plus minus right now. Um, that's And that's the, you know, the stat that Jalen Clark was always like, way way off the charts because they contribute in so many different ways but it's a statistical measure so you're getting a lot of you know blocks and and steals in there but he's doing all of that stuff and that stuff matters um i would say that's one of the personnel standouts i think he's got to be i mean if i were you know if i were the the basketball coach i'd probably just start him but uh yeah i'm with you at least at the very least off the bench and if you were the basketball coach would you shave your beard or would you just go like bushier i would go even bushier um the one other thing i want to say i think that and i'm not blaming cronin because it's uh, this would have been a little bit out of the box thinking slightly i would have i mean antoine watson (laughs) just lit up UCLA, 14 of 15 shooting, scored 32 points, hit all three of his threes. Um, he had been one for five from three before that, and he probably hit all three because he was wide open. They let him shoot. I would have loved to have seen Fabloy on him early yeah. and and play 28 minutes, basically defending. And you take Antoine Watson, he scores you know, a reasonable 17 points, 18. UCLA wins this game. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of things like, but so I'm cherry picking. I get it. That but goes, I, that I would goes have to, liked to have seen that. That goes to my other elephant in the room, my very long, tall giraffe in the room. Um, this is the part where I think uh, we're, we're going to, the, the discordance between what observers are seeing and what actually happens on the court is probably going to be the most profound is a die Mara. Um, this this week I thought was pretty eye-opening, which they started, so Adem and Adai started alongside each other against Shamanad and against uh, Gonzaga. And Adai was obviously ineffective against Gonzaga, three fouls in three minutes, 
Um, but even against Chaminade, wasn't particularly effective um, and didn't play much of the second half. Each time uh, it contributed to, you know, some some issues uh, defensively. Um, I, I think this is the piece that... So against Gonzaga, they did something very, very interesting, which was not only did they go a dem and a die to start the game, but then because of a die's foul trouble, the first player off the bench ended up being Ken Kenneth Nuba. Nuba. Yeah. Um, and if, if you're finding yourself in a position where you are so committed to the big, big that you're bringing in Nuba that's the first player off the bench... I just think you got to go back to the drawing board. Um, and especially in that lineup, because I think the idea was we're going to advantage ourselves against this Gonzaga lineup because we're going to have more size. We're going to have more strength than they do. And that's going to give us an advantage on the interior. The only problem is none of these guys have been an advantage on the interior. And I'm, I'm including a Dem, uh, certainly Nuba, but also a Dai. And uh, none of them have been playing very good defense. Uh, Nuba's probably been the best. Uh, Nuba's Adep- probably been the best pure post player on, on this year sides, so far. Yeah. On both sides Adem's, of the court. Adem's out of control. He's trying to do way too much on both sides. Like, he's trying to do way too much offensively. He's taken, you know, the jumpers and all that kind of stuff. But on defense, he's trying to do way too much. It feels like he's constantly running around between the key and the perimeter. So he's not even, we're not even getting the advantage of his rim protection like there that's not even happening so um i i think the other piece of information and this is the part that i think is going to take the longest to get there is this this team may in some absolutely unknowable future be okay at playing big big and i mean true big big center center may be okay at doing that at some point in the deep and distant future but I'm talking deep and distant, like probably not this year. I don't know if Adai Mara is going to be, you know, we talked about it preseason where, oh, maybe he can play 20 minutes a game. He's so far from that right now um, that it's it's hard to imagine it. But Right. So, at- so yeah, I, I'm, I think you're nails here. And I think the big, the thing that might naturally solve this issue and what you said, uh, a Daimara um, goes out. Ken Nuba comes in. So Cronin's still trying to run the two big offense. Right. Um, that is that's an indication that he's going. He wants to make this work because they've spent so much time on it in practice. He wants to make it work. The difference will be, I think, is that Burke Biutunchel is going to emerge. As he played his first three games, his first three games, games he's actually played in, I don't know, six months. You can tell it's there. Yeah. The height, the skill. And what was most impressive, especially um, when he started against Marquette, was his, because Marquette was one guy who's 6'8 and then a, a bunch of perimeter guys. He could move his feet and defend. Um, yep. By the time. Gonzaga came around. Uh, Gonzaga, sorry, he was a little, probably a little <laughs> fatigued. Um, but I think the fact that Cronin started him against Marquette is 
recognition that this guy is one of my top five players. I'm going to have to get him on the court. He, he didn't play like that during those three games, but he flashed what he's going to be. So what I think it will naturally shake out that uh, Berkey's going to be playing. He's going to have to play. And if you put him in with the Dem, you're not going to play that too big offense, right? Right. It's going to be the one in, four out. Um, also, because, I mean, Berkey's not a true five. He's a, he's a face-up four. And he'll be able to defend college fours. So yeah. when he is in, it's did you, have you watched the offense when he's in? They they go between the two big and the one in four out. Yeah, it improves spacing because he is actually uh, a semi threat from the perimeter. Even <laughs> even acknowledging his horrible air ball <laughs> against uh, Shamanad, uh, he, he's a, he's an actual threat from the perimeter. So he he draws respect. He draws bodies. Um, and but, yeah, but even it, when they're doing the too big with him in it, it improves spacing <laughs> Yeah, Be, because he, I think he's got a better feel for it. He knows, he knows how to play that kind of offense. He's a really good passer, which he showed this weekend too. So I think he naturally is going to solve this problem. And then as you said, they, they will eventually do a couple of things by the end of the season. Um, Adaimara will come in when Berke is playing the four or maybe Alain Fiblois is playing the four. Um, and then maybe they will occasionally have Mara and Bona in together for that too big. But I, I think by the time, like you said, by the end of the year, I think we naturally might not be seeing that as much. And I think it's all because it's, it's going to happen because of Berke. Yeah, and well, I would say for Mara, I would say he's he's having a real tough time um, dealing with the strength of the players he's going against, um, and he's getting stripped. He just looks a little bit, uh, he looks rattled, um, but he also just doesn't look strong enough, and I think that's one of the biggest limitations is you can't have him doing the high post stuff that you thought you might be able to have him do against high major opponents. Because he's just going to get stripped over and over and over again because he keeps bringing the ball low, because he can't hold on to it long enough, because he doesn't hold it high, he doesn't hold it confidently. And so all that stuff where we were talking about, oh, you can have him in the high post and have him lob it to Bona for a dunk just over and over again, he can't do it because um, he'll draw a double and he'll panic. Um, and that stuff will improve a little bit from a feel perspective, but some of the strength stuff... I don't know how much you can do that in season. That's uh, why that's why I think it's he's going to be the most effective when he works to post up on the block, deep in the paint, get him the ball and that's when and just keep the ball high, nice, don't uh, put he, it on the yeah. floor, just turn over. He can go off of each shoulder. I mean, he's yeah. that good and let him score within, you know, 7 feet. Yeah, let him the, do the, that. Yeah, it's going to be... And he's a gonna, great passer out of that, too. I watched enough games. He's a very good passer out of that low block post. It's going to take some time. Um, yeah, but I think at this point, for me, I think what this team will grow into and what I would like to see is probably, like you said, uh, Berke at the four. Um, and, and he... I mean, honestly, I, they did a little bit of it, and I think this is going to have to be, if they want to hit their upside, having him do uh, some small ball backup five... Um, behind Bona, uh, 
whenever Mara gets ready, you can obviously have him be, you know, 15 minutes at the five. But until then, have Burke do the backup five stuff. Um, and I'm talking against good opponents. Experiment however you want against UC Riverside. But once you get back to playing Ohio State and Maryland and stuff. And then um, your, your four minutes, I think it's really simple. After Burke moves to the five or moves to the bench, it's Alon and uh, Lazar. Uh, Lazar has... What what is my dude Lazar rebounding at right now? Because it's he's something insane. Seven rebounds a game, I think it is. Yeah, he's right, his, he's right behind Bona. Yeah, his defensive rebounding rate is uh, second on the team among guys who've actually played considerable minutes. And, and uh, his offensive Bona. rebounding has been a yeah, he's, huge factor. When he flies, he did it. I mean, he he got a lot of offensive rebounds. But there was two during the course of three games where. He flew into the paint, ripped a ball away from a lot of tall guys, came down, held on. I mean, it looked like a Superman move. He's playing his ass off, too. Yeah. So, yeah, the rebounding is is a big thing. Um, sorry to cut you off, but I'll just finish on him. He is a good offensive player. He, he can't create on his own. Uh, he can take two dribbles, pull up if he's got space. He's, he's a good mid-range shooter. We've seen when they run something for him on inbounds, and it's automatic. Run a couple of screens, a couple of staggered screens. He comes around, catches, and it's and it's nails. They gotta they gotta start doing that stuff like in the half court offense for him. But right now, he that's a second or third. Remember Johnny Juzang? <laughs> yeah. They ran that whole offense to get him an open look. The entire offense was now they're running an offense a high low two big offense, the handoff thing, the uh, turn, look down uh, for the other. And it's – we need a little bit more of the Johnny Juzang offense for, well, there, for there, Stefanovic. We're, we're getting, what we're getting a lot of is the let Adembona cook offense. Um, and uh, Adembona can't cook. Adembona should be, I don't know, right now that starting group. Uh, let's say Stevanovic should be the number one option or number two. Max should be vice versa. Uh, Dylan Andrews probably number three. I would put a Dembona as your fourth option uh, offensively. Basically, if open for a lob or a dunk, or if he has a small guy on him. Yeah, that's it. It's all about matchups. Yes. Or if it's an obvious single matchup where they're not going to be able to bring a double easily. But if he can be doubled you really shouldn't throw it to him because he's struggling really hard with decisions out of doubles. Um, and he'll then kind of mechanically try to go up, won't be able to get stripped. Um, I mean, he dropped a couple of balls. I think his hands just generally aren't, they're not spectacular hands. Um, and so he's he can be stripped, he can drop the ball, um, can just kind of fumble it a little bit. When he can go up and do that little right-handed semi-jump hook, it's more or less like a push shot because he turns his body fully towards the hoop and shoots it. Um, but when he can do that from like six feet, eight feet, he's okay. Um, and when he can dunk, he's great. Uh, but I think treating him like what he was last year where he was more or less a rim runner um, is probably the more effective move. I think this, you know, we're going to let him make decisions in the low post. Good for his development, maybe, uh, but I don't think it's good for the success of this team this year. Yeah. Um, 
Completely agree. Uh, a Dembona, you know I'm an Adem. I've got a little bit. I love of, a Dembona. Yeah, I love a Dembona. Um, when you, if you ever get a chance to be around him within like six feet, just sit there and like you're in, you're feeling the rays of the sun. Oh, we're getting weird again. Let's go for it. <laughs> um, but he's just still really raw. He's not the offensive player that's being assumed right now. Um, yeah. And it's not good when he does it against mid majors because that'll only that only builds conf, uh, overconfidence that he can get it done against uh, against high majors. He hasn't been able to. Will he get better? Yeah, I'm sure they're going to try to settle him down in the post. And but remember last year. This is what's interesting too about last year. He passed really well out of the post because in his mind, he wasn't the scorer. He was he was looking for the other options on the team, so he found them as a good passer. Now he's not even he's so concerned with scoring because he's been told he's a score he's the scorer. He's not even looking to pass. When he gets doubled, he is a I, I we've seen it. He's a very good he's a good passer for a post player. He should be looking around to to pass the ball. So he'll get better. What we're kind of saying is we hope. It gets off that track, though, that that the objective of the offense is not that a Dembona is the number one option. Yeah. And the other piece of information for me that was interesting was Sebastian Mack. Um, because I think so there's a little bit of, um, I don't know, I the beholder stuff going on. But like uh, you kind of see in Mack whatever you want to see because you can see absolutely uh, a selfish shot hunting player. Right. You can see like somebody, somebody, I'm not going to name names, uh, posited a Jalen hands comparison, which I thought was borderline an act of violence, maybe, maybe a crime in certain jurisdictions, but okay. But you, you, you can see that a little bit, but on the other hand, I see, um, so first a driver, like they haven't had, uh, honestly, I don't remember the last time UCLA, certainly not Mick Cronin, but I don't remember the time UCLA had a guy who could drive the way he can. Um, quick first step, get to the rim. Pretty much any time he's got a guy on him who's not uh, NBA-level quickness. Like, he's going to get to the rim. Um, so that's one. And two, um, somebody who can finish pretty well at the rim for layups Um and he doesn't even have he, he can't get off the floor. No, he doesn't have a lot not. of spring. It's just he's so strong. Yes. And and his shoulders are wide that he body can control. Body control and carve carve enough space to be able to to finish. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an element of an offense that is that has been lacking in in the Cronin era. And I think people are not recognize they're they're putting him in a bucket rather than recognizing the unique part of what he does. And the thing with that is that's not something you want going away at all. That's something you need to refine. But I think that's the other piece of this team that's really really intriguing from an upside perspective is they haven't had a guard like that. Like they really haven't. Tiger Campbell was not that. Uh, David Singleton certainly wasn't that. Johnny Juzang wasn't that. 
Uh, Jules Bernard wasn't even really that uh, big physical, but he didn't have that kind of quick first step where he's going to beat a guy pretty much every time he takes him off the bounce. Um, that's a piece that they, uh, that I think that's the part, honestly, that made me kind of excited about the upside of this team this year, because if he can get refined, and this is the part that's a problem is he's already, you know, clearly Cronin's crunch time toy. Like he was giving him the ball to, uh, to make things happen at the end game against Marquette. Yeah. But I think that play was drawn up as a kick out to Dylan. Andrew yeah, 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 yeah. But already Cronin's respecting his driving ability enough to know that the other team is going to respect it enough that he'll be able to get an open shot for Dylan Andrews off sure. that play. Yep. But I guess um, you're you're going to have to refine him in some way, and it's hard to do that when he's already maybe your best guard option on offense, and you know that. But they they got to use the bench to teach him. They got to use all those teaching tools. But there is there's something really really cool there if they can. Um, if they can kind of carve away some of the, the 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 bits that aren't so great. Because there was a lot in that Gonzaga game where he would drive into the chest of a defender, not draw a foul, and then he didn't have anything to do. If they can just teach him, if there is a defender who is literally going to, you know, give you his chest, you have to kick it out because that means that was a double where a guy switched over. It made sense in that game, though, because there were Whoa, a, yeah, a totally. foul, foul called every 47 seconds. I'm going to go run into this guy's chest. I should get a damn call. Yeah, yeah. No, the stunning thing about those two games is I think Mac shot 14 free throws against Marquette in a much, I won't say a better officiated game, but a differently officiated game, but only nine against Gonzaga, and he did no less driving. <laughs> um, so... If you throw Dylan Andrews and Sebastian Mack into a big uh, mixing bowl, I I think you have all the elements you need for a great backcourt. Yeah, they're they're not the traditional. Here's all the point guard, and that's that's Dylan Andrews. Here are all the there those traits, and then here's the shooting guard. There's, but. They fulfill all of those on both sides of the court, on on offense and defense. Yep. They've got to figure that out. Yeah. Um. I, I there is an offense here where Sebastian Mack drives, and he kicks it out to either Stefanovic or Dylan Andrews, and they're going to be at least for a while. <laughs> defenses are going to just sag and leave those guys open. And if you leave both those guys open, they're going to shoot at a 36% clip at least from three. Um, Dylan Andrews is a good shooter. Um, he's not getting too many open looks. When he gets an open look, he, he hits it. Uh, it's because he's got a guy who's you know on ball defending him. He's not getting – he needs the, the ball kicked to him when the defense is going some other direction. Yeah. That's usually the shooting guard. Sometimes, I mean, you, you, not let's not even define it. Um, there's the makings of a really good backcourt there, along with uh, along with Stefanovic. Um, it's going to be about drawing the defense to collapse and kickouts. So much of that, and like I said, running some screens for Stefanovic. Um, what we're kind of saying is. Uh, at this point, and it really seized up in your mind in against Gonzaga. 
you're seven, eight minutes into Gazaga and you're all, how's this team going to score? The only yeah. way to score is if Sebastian Mack drives in his foul and goes to the line. I mean, there was no, there was no, without a, without a Dambona as a go-to in the middle, a, a dime, if a Dimara brings anything to the court is if he catches it in the block, he's got a good chance that he's going to score the ball. Um, but take that away, and this is an offense which is trying to get the ball down into the post and and isn't running really anything for its perimeter players. If you take if that happens, there's nothing, there's no offense. There's this offense has to start emphasizing drives and kickouts and or or uh, feeds into the post and then passing out of that to open shooters. And I think at least for a while, opposing teams are going to let that happen. <laughs> if they do a scout on UCLA, they're going to say, they're trying to get the ball inside of those guys. We need to collapse on them. They're, and, you know, Dylan Andrews right now is shooting 22% from three. If someone looks at that, does a scout on them, they're going, oh, let's let them shoot, right? Yeah. Um, it's funny. You, you've kind of set up your your upcoming opponents right now. Um, in a good way because you've been running this post-first offense. And Sebastian Mack, here's where he really needs to develop. He needs to under... Because right now when he's driving, his head is down and he's going to that basket and either scoring or getting fouled. He's got to be looking for a kick out. He's got to yeah. be looking for someone open. That's yeah. going to be the big development for him. That decision-making when he's driving. Yeah, and they need to have shooters on the wing when he's in. Um, but... I think uh, there's, I guess there's a lot of upside just with him and with that ability. Um, when you can drive like that, it opens up an offense. Um, so I don't know. There was a lot of um, really good stuff, uh, but I think we're we're in agreement uh, fully on Alon, um, Berke's potential, um, and then one you know. thing to mention about Alon too. Um. He doesn't look like he shoots the ball really well, and it's a long shot. takes a while to get off, but and he's only taken two, but he's hitting one. He's hit one three. Uh, by the end of practice, meaning right before the season was going to start, he had snuck up on it to the point where he was one of the best three point shooters on the team. Yeah, yeah. So if he can get comfortable doing that and shoot thirty four percent from three. Given everything else he does, he's got to play 25 minutes. Yeah, they, they, they got to get him a lot more minutes. Yeah. And that's just, I, I think, that's the one that I think is going to drive everyone crazy is he, if he's back to like five to ten minutes. Um, or And then the other thing to look for was uh, Berke, did he play in the second half like a minute or two? I think he played in the second half. Let me, let me pull up the stats. I've got them in front of me. Uh, he played... He played three minutes in the second half. And Mick Cronin in postgame, and I get this, he said, I'm looking for the guys I need to win a game. And I'm hoping that Berke is in that, is under that umbrella. I mean, he played Brandon Williams six minutes, so I don't, I, I don't know. I think Mick was, uh, yeah. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, like, the things Mick focuses on in a game are startling to me. Um, and I'm just like, huh. Okay, well, fine. I mean, you, you've won a lot more basketball games coaching than I have. Um, but it's... Uh, wait, wait. Someone's got to quote that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, like, 
Brandon Williams, he said after the game, oh, he was pretty, he, 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 he gave us, he gave us a nice lift when he was in or something like that. And I'm like, huh. They love Brandon Williams. <laughs> I like Brandon Williams. It's too. that East Coast thing, though. They're seeing that East Coast gritty kid. Yeah, that's the kind of stupid stuff I don't love. Because, um, sure, I, nobody from a place is tougher because they're from a place. That's just uh, my guess. Okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Berke's got that gritty Istanbul thing. Um, <laughs> the mean streets of Istanbul. Yeah, the mean streets of Istanbul. Anyway, um, yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot to work out here. It's a fun little project. Um, I think everything we said preseason still holds. There's going to be ups and downs. It's oh, going to look more weird. more so. Like I wrote, oh, yeah. The, the floor is higher coming out of this. I, I said they'd be 4-2. and two. They're 4-2. and two. They've won and lost each game that I we predicted. It wasn't hard. It's not a big boast. Right. But um, I'd say the floor is higher mostly because of that they, they are a team that generally has played hard and been pretty tough so far, all in all. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So... Uh, we will, we will, we will see how this shakes out. All right. We gotta, we gotta switch gears, Tracy. Yeah. All right. We're switching gears to football, uh, football. Um, I, I feel like, uh, what, what's that line? Uh, general, generalissimo Francisco Franco still dead. Uh, Chip Kelly still <laughs> UCLA is football head coach. Oh, wow. You're, you're going to go right in. You're not going to like pussyfoot around this are you no i don't pussyfoot yeah i know i don't you're not a pussyfooter i don't believe in pussyfooting tracy um well let's so, first, let's first just start about the my report everything sure. that happened just really a fast yes we i 100 am confident what i reported was accurate in my history of doing this job it was on the very high side of reliable sources, a, a, a very big number of reliable sources telling me this. And what they told me, it was likely Chip Kelly would get fired. Dave, you heard from your sources independent of mine, correct? Yeah, it's uh, it was it, it's uh, people who are in the uh, actually never wrong category. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's true. Sure. Yeah, so... Do things change? Yes. And I know people say I'm using the fluid thing, but guys, if you want to be taken behind the curtain and you, you want to know the whole process here, this is what's going to happen. Things, things change. Uh, I, I'm things obviously changed. And honestly, I think the report changed things also. Uh, I think there are people at UCLA that want to control the narrative and they had lost the narrative with that report. Um, so there's that about that. Um, uh, they beat USC, obviously, and you got it. That that was a that was a fun game to watch, though. <laughs> I gotta tell you, when you get those two colors out on that field, the thing the 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 good one too was that just was kind of chills was the scoop and score. That was just. That was just too much. And it's Alex Johnson. I, I really like Alex Johnson. The walk-on. Who is it? He's not a walk-on playing because, you know, Chip Kelly's got some weird uh, uh, affection for walk-ons and he kind of, you know, doesn't. Deserve. Alex Johnson might be their best if it, well, it's not Kamari Ramsey, but he legitimately should be playing. <laughs> 
So I that was all good to see. So yeah, that game was fun. But as Dave, I'm sure will elaborate on, that doesn't change the situation. No. Um Okay, here that, we go. That UCLA is deciding to um and maybe I don't know, whatever. Who knows what happens in the next couple weeks, but that UCLA is apparently deciding not to do the obvious. Um, and the obvious being, of course, uh, moving on to a new coaching era, however you want to get that done, uh, whether you want to do it with a firing, is, um, well, it's bad. It's not, it's not good. Uh, it's, it's not good decision making. Um, and that's just, look, you can get scared off by Bruce Feldman reporting a thing or Joel Klatt saying a thing or Casey Wasserman coming in and saying a thing. But the, the reality is that this regime is failed. Um, and okay. They, they're more than likely going to finish this year, eight and four. And they finished last year, nine and four, and they finished the previous year, eight and four. Um, and you can look at that in one way and you can say, Oh, this is, this is pretty good. This is, this is fine. Uh, but then you look at it and you say, hey, those were three of the easiest UCLA schedules in history. Um, and they finished with four losses every single year. Uh, and then on top of that, next year, it's not going to be the easiest schedule in UCLA history. It's going to be right back to UCLA having what it has historically always had, a pretty hard schedule. How's that going to look? Now, this doesn't take uh, elaborate prediction. Uh, this is pretty easy stuff. How is that going to look? Well... Uh, look at that defense. Who's going to be lost from that defense? Uh, Leatu Latu for sure. Uh, who else? Uh, those Murphy twins wanted to leave after last year. They just didn't have quite the years that they wanted to have to leave for the NFL. See, so stick- you know what, Dave? Let's not speculate about this because I kind of have information on it, but I just I'm not comfortable because I don't want to violate sure, all these. Fine. That, but let's just say ten of eleven starters. Lot of lot of defensive players could be moving on. Yeah. Uh, not 10, I'm sorry. 8 of 11 starters is what I found. And it was 11 of the top 18 in the rotation. Right. Something so like that. 11 you're 12. going to be replacing a ton of your defense. And you're going to be replacing, you know, a decent chunk of your offense. Let's just say that. Or not just replacing, upgrading. I mean, you need to go out and up. It's the same uh, thing. It's the same doesn't, thing. Same like, word. All, yeah. all of a piece. You've yeah. got to replace talented bodies from an eight and four team. Okay. And you're going to have to do that with NIL money that doesn't exist. Um, and you're going to have to do that uh, with, uh, with a coaching staff um, that has largely eschewed recruiting at the high school level to such a point where you can't really expect instant impact players from that level either. So the combination of all of that is that next year's team is going to be less talented than this one, and it's going to be facing a harder schedule. If you just keep it to those two simple truths, you can arrive at the right conclusion, which is they're going to be much worse next year. They're going to have a much worse record. Um, And Chip Kelly is already on a demonstrable hot seat. And that's not the hot seat of uh, Martin Jarmond or the administration. It's the reliable truth that a fan base is already done with him. 
And so if you have decided not to fire him, okay, I guess you have the control over that. But what does next year look like with a coach on the hot seat and he's going to be coaching a much worse team? So are the optics going to be good? Are they going to be great? Are you going to enjoy them? Are they going to be bad? Are there going to be banners being flown from planes? Like, what's it going to look like next year? Because that's the thing that UCLA administration has failed to grasp time and time again is the timeliness of a firing matters more than you would think. And the optics of extending this beyond the point of reasonability, beyond the point where it's uh, worthwhile to continue, is the point where things get uh, ugly. And really what it comes down to is everything that you just said as it pertains to finances. Uh, We can talk about records, you know, uh, his record, Chip Kelly's record, is it, worthy of firing is it this at this yeah you know talk about it forever but right now anyone who watches this program has to question the financial way forward for the program we've told you and this is not guesswork this is not speculation um NIL is is the most immediate future to college sports, at least college football and college basketball. You need NIL money to get talent. You need talent to win. I mean, are there variables in that? Yeah, better coaching will enhance that. Bad coaching will hurt that, obviously. But you need the talent. You need NIL money. I know that UCLA, the football NIL collective is struggling to get support for the football program. Did it get a little trickle of a boost after USC? Yes, it did, but nothing significant. Um, So that's the main financial component. Uh, The UCLA football program has been the one that traditionally has supported the athletic department. It hasn't in, I don't know how many years in many years, Towards the end of the Mora era, during all of the Chip Kelly era, he is Chip Kelly's program has not captured the fan base in a way to where the administration is satisfied with how much money they're making from it. It's that simple. You can tie a lot of that into attendance. The attendance has been poor under Chip Kelly. Uh, it's funny because you can discuss why. Um, you can talk about that he didn't he hasn't he doesn't promote the program all of that but really it's kind of funny um there's a psychology here UCLA fans i mean i think have been beaten down for so long between uh Carl Durrell, Rick Neuheisel then they get a little bit of hope for Jim Mora's first 3 years and then the last 3 years of Jim Mora so add up all those years how many were good are few and then those th- to to pile on. I don't know if pile on is the right word, the right phrase. Those three first losing seasons under Chip Kelly. Y- you just uh, there are UCLA fans that pretty much said, "I I'm I'm done right now with this." You're going to have to win at a significant level for a while to bring me back. And you want to argue, "Oh, aren't UCLA fans horrible?" This is the way it is. Get over it. <laughs> so. 
this is where we are. The attendance is not going to magically turn around. The way it could turn around, and we've been saying this from the beginning, is if Chip Kelly strung together some 10-win seasons or an 11-win season. That's what he would need to do. Coming off of those three losing seasons and the fact he doesn't promote the program. There's no real way forward for the attendance to turn around if UCLA wins out this year. It's not going to turn around. And here's if if UCLA is relying on Big Ten teams on the road coming to the Rose Bowl, and that's what they're relying on as financial viability for this program, that's just sad. <laughs> that's sad to me that that's – I know it's all about money. Um, it's not about necessarily success. If this team won eight – eight to nine, seven to eight, nine games a year, but it was way in the black when it came to profitability in a way that UCLA administration was really happy about it. They were making a lot of money. There would never be a change of coaching ever, ever. So it's not that though. It needs this UCLA program where it is now post COVID with the Rams and the chargers in town, it needs to win 10 or 11 games a lot of times. It needs to compete for, it needed to compete for Pac-12 championships. It needs to be competitive in the Big Ten you if it's going to you, make money. You can't be gifted the schedules they've been gifted the last three years and lose four games every single year. You just can't. And so, we're talking now, let's always think about what Dave's saying right now from a money perspective about yeah. making money. So I think there's there's a few ways to think about it, um, and you can either bucket it however you want to do it: incompetence, ignorance, or cynicism. Um, and so I I don't think it's pure incompetence um, to to continue with this era, um, leaving me with the two other buckets. One is ignorance, um, and this is the part where I don't know. Martin Jarman is new to UCLA. Um, still he's, he's only experienced bad UCLA, right? He's been here since COVID. Um, he may just, and this is something that I've kind of seen as a through line with a lot of his comments on attendance. Um, a lot of his commentary on Rose bowl and all this kind of stuff is I think he, he sees, um, what UCLA is doing now midway through the chip Kelly era post COVID as the way things will always be with attendance. Um, and the thing is, it, it wasn't even 10 years ago when I think UCLA was averaging 75,000 a game for Jim Mora in 2014. Um, this is all that it takes. All that it takes is win some real games uh, against good teams, uh, be in the conversation, uh, and be exciting. That's it. Um, and Jim Mora was able to do that. Do you know what Jim Mora is doing at UConn right now? I think they won two games this year. We're not talking about, uh, Jim, uh we're not talking about like Nick Saban. You, you hired the failed Falcons coach and he was able to accomplish that. Um, so it, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take going and hiring, uh, the best coach in history. It just takes hiring somebody who wants to win and has some energy. Um, so that's one. And that's that's in the ignorance pile where maybe maybe still just doesn't realize what a good coach could bring in terms of eyeballs on the program, in terms of interest in the program, in terms of uh, 
actual dollars, like all that kind of stuff. And then there's the cynical bucket, which is UCLA is going to the Big Ten next year. Do you know what that's going to include? A huge financial windfall. That financial windfall is all those TV dollars. Now, we've been we've been positing the hopeful scenario with what we, what UCLA will do with that money, which is reinvest it in the program, make it even better, make it more, you know, able to win and all that kind of stuff. The cynical angle is what can that money also do? It can inure you from your fan base. Uh, it can make it so that you don't have to feel pressure to change because you don't really need butts in the seats as much. Um, you can just cash that money, have it fund your other athletic programs, take your, you know, seven losses a year and call it a day. Um, and that's another angle that some, some schools have actually chosen that angle. Rutgers being one, um, there's a lot of choices on the immediate horizon that I don't think UCLA fans are necessarily contending with that, um, Going into the Big Ten right now with a regime that is not not poised for success is going to lead to some weird stuff in the next year or two. Um, and uh, the records are probably not going to be very good. But uh, I just, uh, what's gone on in the last week and a half to kind of shift this momentum is not a not a great insight into um, the decision making there. And And... If this all plays out like what you're saying, Dave, it's really, if you take the real big, big picture, uh, we were talking about it a couple of days ago. How many wins? It, let's just say this is, you know, we're speculating a lot, but given how the transfer portal will be, we and you just, you said it not too long ago, a few minutes ago, UCLA will probably be, the team will probably be about as good as it is this year. Defense won't be as good. Offense will probably be a little bit better. And that's just, we're not going to get into how we came upon that from player to player. But, you know, speculating who who's going to stay, who's going to leave, the chances of them replacing some talent through the transfer portal. Um, that team, like you said, Dave, what's its record in the Big Ten next year? All right. So just to eyeball it. Um, so they have to go at Hawaii. They'll win that. Indiana at home, they'll win that. At LSU, they'll lose that. Oregon, they'll lose that. At Penn State, they'll lose that. Two and three. Minnesota at home, probably win that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Rutgers and at Nebraska, let's just go one and one through that. Uh, so that's four and four. Four and four. Iowa at home. Wow. That's tough. Let's say that's, that's, let's let's say leave that. Four. Yeah. Uh, okay. At Washington, five and five. USC at home. Well, if they get a good defensive coordinator. Let's just go this. USC and Fresno State, home and home. Let's go one and one through that. Six and six. Six and six. So given what we just laid out, the possible mentalities, let's say it's six and six. Do they they keep riding with that? Oh, but Tracy, uh, you know, because it's, it's, the, the, it's one five hundred year. That's not so bad. Well, and also think what they're thinking about. The yeah. the um, attendance the Rose Bowl. Uh, give me those home games again. Indiana, Oregon, Minnesota. Okay, Iowa. first off, Indiana will Indiana fans will probably show up just to come out to the Rose Bowl for the fun of it. Oregon fans show up everywhere when you have an elite program, and they're Oregon fans. Iowa fans will flood Pasadena. Uh, who else? Minnesota. Oh yeah. What what date is that? 
October 12th. Yeah, you want to get out of Minnesota on October 12th. Okay. And then USC and Fresno State. Okay. You know what? It's it's not like Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan fans coming to the Rose Bowl. So the attendance will be just okay, better. It will be better than it will it was this year by far. Um, well, because it's actual high major opponents every game except for Fresno State. Right. So... Uh, do they just say six and six, but the attendance was better? We're making some money. We got some money now from the Big Ten. Do we just keep riding with six and six? Yeah, six and six in a bowl game, baby. That's dark. That's dark. <laughs> we cannot end it with that. <laughs> um, okay, UCLA, they're playing Cal this oh, weekend. Yeah. Let's talk yeah, about the Cal woo! game. <laughs> I uh, forgot about that game. Uh, the sturdy Golden Bear, uh, they're going after six wins. Uh, UCLA is going after eight. Uh, Cal's obviously got some motivation advantage going into the game because they're actually playing for something. Uh, UCLA is playing for, I think, the opportunity to be more firmly ensconced in the Los Angeles Bowl. I'm not sure. Um, doesn't really matter. What uh, date's the Los Angeles Bowl? It's like the 16th? December 16th. It's not the one you want if you actually recruit. If you're a if you're a, rec- a recruiting program, but uh, okay, Las Vegas Bowl, those are the two chances, right? Really? Well, yeah, because they won't get the Sun Bowl again. So basically, it's three teams: Utah, USC, and UCLA competing for the Vegas Sun and LA Bowl. Sun Bowl just took UCLA, so they won't take them again. So it really comes down to, I think Vegas is going to want Utah more than anybody else, and I think they're going to get. Them. And so then it's USC to the Sun Bowl and UCLA to the Los Angeles Bowl. Okay. Um, anyway, so Cal. Uh, here's my read on Cal. They're a bad team. Uh, they've got a pretty decent offense. Uh, their defense is horrible. Um, they've shown signs of life with Fernando Mendoza at quarterback. Their running game is pretty good. Jaden Knott's pretty good. Um, UCLA, if they play well, should beat them pretty good. That's about it. Yeah. The matchups all favor UCLA. Cal's few little strengths on offense, you can just see UCLA's defense just snuffing those out. Yeah. Uh, And then on the other side, I mean, Cal's defense ain't good. No. Just not good. Um, UCLA will probably be able to run the ball against them, you would suspect. Uh, But probably look to be even more balanced have the ability to be a little bit more balanced. I think Cal's passing defense is just about the best thing it does. Yeah. (laughs) Um, UCLA should clearly win this game. Clearly. And, uh, you know, let's bring in all the UCLA fans so we can all just join hands. It's, It's the last game of this season. It's senior night. You give senior day, senior night. It's at 730, right, the game? Um, so it's a good tribute to all those UCLA players that have been giving so much of their time, effort, life, uh, to the UCLA program. So that's all good to send them out with a win. But other than that, just kind of how much interest is there in this game? See, getting back to what we were saying, how, how much interest, how many people will be at this game? Who... Who among you out there, you are all the diehard UCLA fans, have any have high interest in this game? Okay, I, I'm going back dark. I heard a tumbleweed. We were, we were supposed to go high. Okay, so UCLA is going to win this game. 
Yeah. They're going to beat down Cal in its last game within the Pac-12. They're going to beat them good. Yeah. They're going to get revenge for the Calimony. Yes. It's going to be a just a resounding victory, and everyone will be excited. Um, there will be joy in Mudville. And the basketball team plays on the 9th. Hey. Right? 30th. Oh, the 30th. Sorry. I skipped over. You skipped over something. I think it was UC Riverside, so it's fine. <laughs> That's why. Um, all right. Well, that's exciting. Um, great. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing when you do that. It's that dog, what that cartoon dog. Remember we talked about it before? Yes, we did. All right. I can't do it like you. That's beautiful all, stuff. That's all we I have. I hope you're all having a great weekend, though. Holiday Happy weekend. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Black Friday. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, for Tracy Pearson. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online. We'll talk to you again next time. See y'all.